I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18 is on page 226 in your pew Bible. Last week in our series on the life of David, we recounted the epic battle between David and Goliath. And now we're going to encounter in 1 Samuel 18 two responses, two very opposite responses to David's success. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, befriends David, whereas Saul, his father, begrudges him. Please follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 18. beginning in verse 1. As soon as he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him from that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands And to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have now but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear. For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I almost used an infamous Donald Trump quote as the title of today's sermon. But I just couldn't quite bring myself to do it. But I told my dad earlier this week, if I use this quote as the title, they'll never forget it. So just for kickers, can you imagine, after having read this passage, what Donald Trump quote might have come to mind that ended up being quite infamous? You'll recognize it as soon as I say it. 
never bend to envy. How many of you remember that? Not many of you. I'm surprised. This was like all over the media when he was campaigning as president. In a, in a former interview, he had neglected to mention his favorite Bible verse. But in this interview with a Christian broadcasting network, he said that one of his most memorable verses from Scripture was in the book of Proverbs that said, never bend to envy. The problem was is that there's no such verse in Proverbs. Uh, a professor from my seminary day said he searched over 20 English translations and, and could not find that verse anywhere, not only in Proverbs, but actually in all of Scripture. Well, the media had a lot of fun with that misquote, and rightly so. However, a phrase almost identical to Trump's quote appears in Dante's medieval poem, The Divine Comedy. Here's what he wrote. Whereby so sweetly love burns in us, we could never bend to any envy. Whereby so sweetly love burns in us, we could never bend to any envy. And that is true. That verse is not in Scripture, but the principle is true. In Galatians 5, Paul identifies love as a fruit of the Spirit and envy as a work of the flesh and says that these two are opposed to one another. And it's only as we walk in the Spirit, as we live according to the Spirit, as we're led by the Spirit, can we resist this sin of envy and all the other sins of the flesh. In 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan is characterized by love and shows up by befriending David. But Saul, Jonathan's father, is consumed with envy. And he displays that by begrudging David. How we react to a peer's success reveals our character. That, I believe, is the primary thrust of this passage, the transformative truth that the Lord wants us to take to heart. How we react to a peer's success reveals our character. Before we look more closely at the text itself, I want to unpack this statement on the screen just a bit. I deliberately chose the words peer's success as opposed to someone else's success, just generically, because of how the insidious evil of envy works. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges defines envy as, quote, the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else, end quote. But Bridges goes on to say, we just don't envy people in general. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. Now think through this. Two conditions that tempt us to envy. Number one, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. And two, we tend to envy in them the areas that we value most. I think this is incredibly insightful. For instance, I am not envious of Josh Allen or Tom Brady. Uh, they are professional athletes and I am a pastor. And even if I were an athlete, they would be completely out of my league. But even as a pastor, I'm not envious of John MacArthur 
John MacArthur, ministerially speaking, from a human standpoint, is completely out of my league. The MacArthur Study Bible has been published in multiple language and distributed all over the world. He's written a 33-volume commentary on the New Testament, close to a couple of hundreds other books. He's a renowned conference speaker. Uh, Many consider him the leading conservative evangelical of our day. I admire John MacArthur, but I'm not envious of John MacArthur. The people that I tend to envy are pastors like myself who have roughly, humanly speaking, the same capabilities that I do and tend to travel around the same circles. It's the pastor with the church that's a little bigger than mine that gets invited to speak at a conference or writes a book or has an opportunity that I wish that I had, or maybe that I don't even want, but I still resent the fact that he got it. And that's how the insidious evil of envy works. Maybe we've enjoyed a measure of success or recognition to a certain extent, then someone else comes along and they're kind of like the new kid in town. They're kind of like the hottest thing happening in your yesterday's news. That can bother us. We tend to envy those who are in a similar station as us, kind of like a peer, not necessarily by age, but maybe station of life or vocation or or capabilities or hobbies or interest. And we tend to envy in them the things that we value most. And that's why we have this thing called sibling rivalry. That's why even in the same home with brothers and sisters living in close proximity to one another, they can envy one another's athletic abilities. Or a sister or brother could uh, envy one of their siblings' personalities or their good looks or their academic abilities. Sibling rivalry. But it's not relegated just to siblings. Parents can struggle with envy too. We can actually be envious of how other people's kids behave. Why can't my kids behave like that? They're not any better parents than I am, are they? Or how easy they have it in compared to the challenges that we face with our children. There's any number of ways that envy can can do its insidious work in our hearts, but it tends to come with those two conditions. People that are close to us, and we envy in them the things that we value most. That was the case with King Saul. It could have easily been the case with Jonathan. I mean, after all, David truly was his peer, and yet Jonathan was the crown prince. He was the heir apparent. He too was a soldier in Israel's army, a leading fighter. And yet Jonathan befriends David, and Saul, Jonathan's father, begrudges him. How we react to a peer's success reveals our character. It really says nothing about them so much as it says something about us. So let's see how this principle played out in the lives of Jonathan and Saul with respect to David. And as we do, I would encourage you to take a look at yourself and and say, Lord, what lessons do you have for me through this text? First of all, let's look at befriending the Lord's servant. Befriending the Lord's servant. 
Right after David kills Goliath, we're told in verse 1, and had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. (laughs) No envy there. No jealousy. No resentment. Just love. Why? Because Jonathan saw in David everything that he wanted to be. He saw David's humility. He saw David's compassion, his kindness, his courage, his devotion, his zeal for God. David was a man after God's own heart. And Jonathan's heart was immediately bound to a man like that. Their friendship revealed what kind of love they shared. And I think there's three qualities about this love worth pointing out. Number one, it was a spiritual love. It was a spiritual love. We could probably capitalize the S in the word spiritual because this kind of love can only be produced by the Holy Spirit of God. The text says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. You know, when someone a thousand years later asked Jesus which of the commands was the most important Jesus quoted from the Old Testament saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He said this is the greatest and most important commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, only as we love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our being, Can we truly love our neighbor as ourselves? And that's why the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. The text literally says his spirit was bound with David's spirit. It was a spiritual love that was produced by the spirit of God. And having said that, I should add that it's a real shame that some have twisted the text of Scripture in a way so as to suggest that Jonathan and David's love was a more physical, sexual kind of love, namely a homosexual love relationship. Liberal theologians and progressive Christians will combine this text with David's lament for Jonathan years later after Jonathan dies, where David said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. They say, aha, see there? Jonathan's love for David was more than that of the love of women. They were gay lovers. Again, I would say that to take Scripture in that way and and to twist it into something very much the opposite of what's being emphasized is to turn Scripture on its head. This past week we had a good example of that in the news, didn't we? Many of us heard of how California Governor Gavin Newsom had billboards supporting, promoting, advocating for abortion. And in order to promote that, he used Jesus' words from Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as yourself. John MacArthur confronted Governor Newsom in an open letter for this gross blasphemy. 
It's what he called and he was right. Likewise, we must call out those who attempt to twist God's word to justify and support sexual perversion. Jonathan and David's love was a spiritual love, a love of the deepest sort that was rooted in their love for God and one another. Jonathan and David formed a friendship that was rooted in a spiritual love, a kind that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit, and therefore it was also, secondly, a steadfast love. It was a steadfast love. Verse 3 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. See the connection? Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. His love for David led him to make a covenant with David. The text literally says that he cut a covenant with David. Uh, In our day, every now and then, I think it used to be more popular than it is now, but you could have two really close friends make a blood pact. You know what that is, right? They would take out a pocket knife or whatever, and they would cut their hand so that it bled, and then they would shake. It's a blood pact, saying that I'm committed to this promise I'm making to you. Uh, You guys uh, maybe have kids that every now and then do a pinky swear. You ever hear that? a pinky swear. Do you know what technically that means? It means that this pinky swear means that if I break my promise, you're allowed to break my pinky. Imagine if we took that literally. Well, to cut a covenant in biblical times, that expression comes from what they would do to seal the promise that had been made. They would actually sever an animal and spread out its severed pieces on the ground and walk in among them as a way of saying, If I break my promise to you, may I be cut in pieces like this animal. That's how seriously they took this bond with one another. They cut a covenant. That is to say, Jonathan was not a fair-weathered friend. Jonathan was a steadfast friend. He didn't befriend David, listen, only to his face when they were with each other. He befriended David and defended David even when David wasn't around and somebody else was talking against him. We're going to see in the next chapter that Jonathan spoke well of David to his father. Even when David wasn't around, Jonathan defended his character, defended his reputation, and he respectfully rebuked his father for his sinful attitude and actions toward David. And he respectfully appealed to him to not sin against God and his faithful servant. Thirdly, it was a selfless love. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This was a highly symbolic and selfless act because a person's clothes signified his identity, his position. You see an example of this at the end of the next chapter, the last scene of 1 Samuel 19. Uh, David is on the run. Saul is trying to, to capture David, but is soon rendered helpless by the Holy Spirit who overcomes him. 
And Saul ends up stripping off his clothes and lying naked. The word there for strips, the Hebrew word pashat, is the same word that's used here in 1 Samuel 18.4 where Jonathan stripped off his armor. And so it signifies that Saul, even against his will, is acknowledging that he has forfeited the kingship. So Jonathan, by voluntarily stripping off his royal robe, his armor, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt, and giving that to David, is a way of signifying, David, you are the one to lead the kingdom. As the crown prince, as the heir apparent, I am recognizing your uh, God-given right to serve his people in this capacity. As I think about Jonathan's selfless act of love, I think we see in that a preview, a foreshadowing of Jesus' selfless love for us. Matthew Henry wrote, Our Lord has thus shown His love to us that He stripped Himself to clothe us. He emptied Himself to enrich us. Nay, He did more than Jonathan. He clothed himself with our rags, whereas Jonathan did not put on David's. Isn't that what we read earlier from Philippians 2? That though Jesus was equal with God, he did not cling to his divine privileges. But what did he do? He laid them aside. And he took on human flesh. He came in the position of a slave and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took our sins on Himself when He willingly died on the cross so that we, in turn, could be robed in His righteousness. So we could be forgiven, reconciled to God, and reign with Him forever. And that's why the gospel means good news. Good news. When we're truly sorry for our sin and recognize that there's no way that we can earn our own righteousness, that if I'm going to be saved from the penalty of my sin, the, the power of my sin over daily living, and one day from the very presence of sin forever and ever, that's going to have to be a work of God. Because I am incapable of rescuing myself from my miserable condition. I struggle with my sin every day. And I justly deserve God's punishment. But when we realize that God in love, sent His Son to live a perfect life of obedience in our place. And more than that, died the death that we deserve to die, being estranged from God the Father. And we recognize that simply by trusting in Jesus, by turning from our sin and trusting in Him to save us, we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God and we are guaranteed eternal life that we will reign with Him forever and ever in a new heaven and new earth. Is there any reason why we don't say with Isaiah, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for He has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. Isaiah goes on to say in the next couple lines, he says, I, I feel like a groom dressed up on his wedding day or a, a bride decked with jewels on her wedding day. That's what it's like for me to be saved, only it's like 10 billion times greater than that. To be robed in the righteousness of God's Son. So 
In Jonathan's selfless act of love to David by giving him his royal robe, his armor, his bow, his sword, his belt, we see not only a a miniature reflection of Jesus' love for us, his selfless love and what he has given to us, but I think in Jonathan's act we also see On the flip side, the only appropriate response to such love. Remember, David is a type of Christ here. He is the victor. He is the champion. He is the champion of his people. And so Jonathan says, in essence, I surrender all. Taking off his bow's robe. Gives him his armor, his sword, his belt, his bow. I All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. What Jonathan did for David because of the man he was, we do for Jesus because of the God-man that He is. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jonathan later said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Isaiah said to the Lord, here am I, send me. It's the only appropriate response to the selfless love of Christ. And that kind of dedication reveals that such a love is truly spiritual, produced by the Spirit of God. It is steadfast. It is for all time and eternity, and it is selfless. In the same way, those that love Christ will join themselves to Him in an everlasting covenant, even as we just celebrated that covenant through the symbol of the cup during communion. How we react to a pure success reveals our character. You know, humanly speaking, Jonathan had more reason than anyone to envy David. And yet no one loved him more. On the flip side, Saul had every reason to love David in light of all that David did for him and how much David loved him. And yet no one envied David more. So let's consider this idea of begrudging the Lord's servant. Look at verses 6 to 8 of 1 Samuel 18. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. Up until now, We're told that Saul loved David greatly. Remember we read that back in chapter 16? So much so that we read here in verse 2 that he would not allow David to return to his father's house. He's like, I want this young man with me. What a blessing he is. But as soon as they come back from battle and Saul begins hearing this, these women sing this song, he becomes very angry because he assumed that David was getting praised ten more times than himself. But that really wasn't the case at all. It's just the way Saul heard it. Did you notice, for instance, that the women gave Saul as king pride of place? They mentioned him first. Saul has slain his thousands. 
and David his ten thousands. They mentioned Saul's name before David out of respect for the king. But furthermore, their combination of terms, thousands and ten thousands, is simply a hyperbolic expression meaning a great undefined number. We see an example of this in Psalm 91. I was actually in the psalm reading for my own uh, time of fellowship with the Lord just two days ago, and I came across these words in verse 7. You've probably heard them. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, no pestilence will come near you. You see, this, this uh, psalm is celebrating God's loving watch care over his people. And it's simply saying, look, uh, people may be falling around you left and right, a thousand on one side, ten thousand on the other side, but the Lord is with you. The Lord will protect you. The pestilence will not come near to you. God is watching over you. The numbers are not meant to be exact. It's hyperbole to highlight the Lord's protection over His people. And in the same way here, the women's song of joy was never intended to make Saul feel inferior to David. It was meant to celebrate what a great team they were. Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. Look at these men. Praise God. Giving us the victory. But proud men cannot endure to hear anyone praise but themselves. And that was the case with Saul. He immediately heard only a contrast. And he had immediate contempt for David, who was being praised along with him. His anger soon led to violence. Verses 10 and 11 The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. find it interesting that the original Hebrew says, David played with his hand, and there was a spear in Saul's hand. So with David, his harp, his lyre in his hand, is playing with his hand, wanting to serve Saul. Saul has a spear in his hand, wanting to slay David. What a contrast. Proverbs 29.10 says, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, revealed the close connection between anger and murder, saying that an angry person like the murderer is also subject to God's judgment and is in danger of the fires of hell. And brothers and sisters, friends, that is why we all need God's forgiveness. Who has not had a resentful feeling towards someone else? A spirit of envy and jealousy and anger and irritation. Who has not coveted praise for themselves while hating the fact that someone else is praised rather than ourselves? How we should thank God that He provides forgiveness through Christ. And isn't it ironic, the New Testament tells us several times that Jesus perceived that the religious leaders had delivered him up out of what? Out of envy. Out of envy. Because Jesus was getting the recognition that they wanted for themselves. They loved the praise that came from people. 
rather than the praise that comes from God. And they murdered God's son as a result of that envy. And yet look at the beautiful irony. They delivered Jesus up out of envy, but it is through his death at the hands of sinners that Jesus forgives us of our envy. What an awesome Savior. What an example of covenantal, sacrificial, selfless, steadfast love. Saul hurled the spear at David, but David escaped him twice. Why twice? If someone hurled a spear at me and I missed him the first time, there would be no second time. To quote another president, George W. Bush, who famously said, Fool me once, shame on, uh, shame on you. Fool me, you can't be fooled again. Remember that? The actual saying is, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The idea is you learn the lesson the first time. But we're told here that David escaped from Saul twice. Why twice? Why did he even stick around the second time? I think this is the reason. David's a man after God's own heart. The Bible says that love believes the best about others. David recognized that there were times that Saul had an angry outburst that a that an evil, harmful spirit would overcome him, that he'd be raving in the house, being in one of those terrible uh, mood swings. And I believe that he believed Saul hurling the spear at him was one of these outbursts of anger. And as one commentator said, it, it was dangerous, but it wasn't malicious. It was an angry outburst. It was not attempted murder. But David would soon find out that that's precisely what it was. But what a good reminder to us that David's inclination was to believe the best about Saul, even when he set out to destroy him. Thankfully, God was looking out for David. Multiple times in this chapter and other chapters, we are told that the Lord was with David, that the Lord gave David success wherever he went. Saul knew this, which is why he eventually removed David out of his presence altogether and made him a military commander. Next week we'll see in verse 17 that Saul's intent in doing this was to put David at the, at the front of the front-line troops in the hopes that the Philistines would kill him. Ironically, David would do this years later to Uriah the Hittite and be successful. Saul's hoping that the Philistines will do his dirty work so that he doesn't have to do it. And yet this only increases David's success. By commissioning David, Saul got David out of his sight, but David remained in the public eye. Look at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Every time they went out to battle, there goes David, the guy who killed Goliath, leading our troops. And then... Here comes David, successful with another victory. The Lord gave him success wherever he went. The Lord protected him, and the Lord gave him prestige in the eyes of the people. The author is making it very clear throughout this chapter that everybody but Saul loves David. Verse 1, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. 
Verse 16, uh, all Israel and all Judah loved David. He went in and out before them. And then we'll see down in verse 20, it says, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. How annoying is that? The very guy I hate, my daughter loves. Maybe you've been in that situation before. Bill Arnold said, quote, even when an enemy of God, motivated by anger, jealousy, or hatred, attempts to intervene forcibly against the progress of what God is accomplishing, that very intervention itself can be used by God to further his purposes. End quote. No evil scheme of man can thwart the holy purpose of God. God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin. But make no mistake, God is sovereign over sin. God uses even the evil schemes of men to accomplish his sovereign purpose. I think a great example is I was talking to a brother, Christian brother and staff member at Compass Care. Remember that fire bombing that took place back in June? Right? Closed down the facility, but only for a day. A brother was telling me that uh, hundreds of interviews have been granted to Compass Care since then. Locally, nationally, giving them a far wider platform for proclaiming the gospel and providing care for expectant mothers. What the arsonist meant for evil, God intended for good. And he is accomplishing his purpose. By the way, on Thanksgiving Sunday, a little over a month from now, Daniel Tomlinson, who is the vice president for advancement at Compass Care, will actually be sharing an update with us in the morning service and also preaching God's word to us that morning. So I think you'll be greatly encouraged by that. So let's wrap this up. God is at work and will accomplish his holy purposes. The question for us as we look at the lives of Jonathan and Saul in relation to David is this. Is your heart right before God? Does the love of Christ control you? Or does envy consume you? Remember, whereby so sweetly love burns in us, we could never bend to any envy. The love of Christ controls us. How can we have contempt for someone else. I was reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth saying, you know, some say, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Peter. And, and Paul says, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? We're just servants through whom you believed. Whatever good comes out of our ministry, God is the one who gives the increase. So that he who plants or he who waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. So with that in mind, if we really want to get to that place where so sweetly love burns in us that we could never bend to any envy, how do we get there? If you're struggling with envy or jealousy, how do we get to this place? How do we become a Jonathan? instead of a soul. Well, first of all, of course, we must repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ alone to save us from sin's penalty, from its power. And having done that, as we continue our battle with sin every day of our lives until Christ returns in glory, and what a day that's going to be, huh? The Bible says that 
It does not yet appear what we will be. But when He appears, we will be like Him. For we will see Him as He is. And that the kernel of that hope is contained within our very observance of communion because by partaking of the bread and cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. And that is the great hope of the believer Will I'll be finally completely free from the sin that so easily entangles me, including the sin of envy. So as we continue this battle, how do we cultivate love and overcome envy as believers? Let me just share three thoughts. Number one, recognize the sovereignty of God. Recognize the sovereignty of God. He's the one who gives each person our talents, our abilities, our opportunities. So if we're to overcome envy, we must mentally bring God into the picture. That's what Jerry Bridges counsels us, and I think that's so good. Do you notice the text says that when Saul became envious of David, what did he do? It says he eyed David from that day forward. What does the Bible tell us where eyes are? Where are our eyes supposed to be? Fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Number two, remember that we're all on the same team. (laughs) The Bible says that all of us who are believers are one body in Christ and we belong to one another. And that's why Scripture says later on in that same chapter, Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. Applaud what God is accomplishing through another one of His servants. Give God the glory, but commend, congratulate, encourage the servants that God is using. Let's remember that even the person that Saul was jealous of, David, there was a price to pay for all this public exposure he was getting. David was on the run for years because he was envied by and hated by Saul. So even though someone else looks like they have life pretty good, you don't really know fully what their life is like. And even if you did, and even if they had it pretty good, remember, as believers, we're all on the same team. We serve the same God, pressing toward the same goal. So number one, recognize the sovereignty of God. Number two, Remember, we're all on the same team. And thirdly, realize your own potential and opportunities. By that, I mean your own God-given potential and opportunities. And again, here's the idea. If I am busy eyeing others with the evil eye of envy, then I'm, and I'm spending all my emotional energy on jealousy, I'm going to lose sight of unique opportunities that God has placed right before me where I can make an impact on other people for His glory. God may give you, He will give you such opportunities if you look out for them. Jerry Bridges wrote, God has a place and assignment for each of us that He wants us to fill. Admittedly, some assignments garner more human recognition than others, but All of them are important in the plan of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we've taken just a few moments this morning to look at 1 Samuel 18. And it's so true that how we react to the success of others reveals so much about our own heart. We thank you for placing here in this text of Scripture the good example of Jonathan and the bad example of Saul so that we might take stock of our own lives, repent of any known sin of envy or jealousy, resentment, and put our eyes back on you, which is where they belong. Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit to work in each and every heart, and we pray that you'll do that as we wrap up our service. In Jesus' name, amen.